Well, we want to welcome you to this discipleship class. We're going to be talking for the next four weeks on the subject, A Place to Dwell. And in that, we're going to take a deep dive into the tabernacle of Moses and what that means to us as Christians in the New Testament, that's Old Testament, things and somebody may say, well, Pastor Ken, that's in the Old Testament. What, what does that mean to me? Well, Scripture says that all Scripture is given by God and is profitable. That means all Scripture being the Old and the New Testament. And so uh, the New Testament points us to things that were established in the Old Testament, and we're going to get into what all that means as we cover this. But our core Scripture is found in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8. And it says this, let them make me a sanctuary or a sacred place that I may dwell with them. So God wants to be with the people that he created. That's what this is all about. And uh, so in order, order to understand what, why we're studying the tabernacle of Moses and what it means to us, uh, we have to understand that God deals with us in mysteries. It seems that God likes mystery. He likes things to be shrouded in a way not to keep things from us but i think god wants to make things interesting i think he uh you know he's of course he's very intelligent but more than that he's god and i think he wants people to dig in and 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 seek him and and be willing to pay a price to get to the great truths that god has for us all so in order to understand the tabernacle that we're going to be talking about uh, we have to understand that there's mystery involved now, uh, Hebrews chapter 10 in the New Testament and verse 1 says this, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow. And he's talking about the law of sacrifices uh, and, and the law of, of the tabernacle, if you will, the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. And these are all just a shadow, remember that word, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. So once again, let's go back to this word shadow. Uh, God deals in this thing called types and shadows. And what does that mean? Well, a shadow of something is not the real thing, okay? A shadow is an image. For instance, if I'm standing in the sun, my person is going to cast a shadow, and it's going to be a shadow of me, but it's not the real me. It's a picture of me. It doesn't have all the details in reality of me, but it points you to me. It points, so shadows point to, tr to real truths. And you could say it this way when we're talking about shadows. Uh, God, uh, uh, a shadow is something shrouded, if you will. And in the Old Testament, God deals with shadows. You could say it this way. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. Or the Old Testament is a, is a shadow. But the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So we can look at the Old Testament and then look at Jesus and what he did to fulfill everything that is spoken of him. In the Old Testament, he fulfilled everything to the very nth degree. And it's amazing uh, that, that God could do that. So we can peel back these amazing layers of truths from the shadows to see what God is like. So the tabernacle that we're talking about in this teaching is a shadow of many things that we have in reality. First of all, a tabernacle is a shadow of Jesus Christ. 
everything in the tabernacle, every piece of furniture, every detailed thing we're going to be talking about in this whole series is a shadow of Jesus. Jesus is in all of it. it even the little things, every piece of furniture, the curtains, the, 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 even the, uh, the gold and the, and the silver and the uh, wood that all these things are made of, they're all a picture and shadow of Jesus, and we'll be talking about that in detail. So the tabernacle is also a shadow of threefold man. There's three parts of the tabern- tabernacle we're going to be learning about. Uh, and they are uh, indicative and revealing to what a real person is. The three parts of the tabernacle are the outer court, the inner court, and then the Holy of Holies. And that's a picture of our body, the outer court, our soul, the inner court, and then our spirit man, which is the Holy of Holies. And you're probably thinking, what in the world is he talking about? We're going to explain all this, all right? Just giving you a little taste right now so the tabernacle is a shadow filled with revelation about god his ways and mankind's redemption so we're going to be digging into this in this series and uh, so let's begin with this on mount sinai moses received the ten commandments he was also given a set of elaborate instructions for building this tabernacle so let's read this scripture again that we began with really our core scripture exodus 25 8 God says, let them make me a sanctuary or a place for, for that I can be, <laughs> that I may dwell among them. That was God's purpose for the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a portable temple or a sanctuary of worship that involves specific protocols and procedures. Now, these protocols purposely provided a possible means for God's people to dwell with him per God's request. Why did God do this? Because God wanted to be close to the people he, cre- he had created. It's just as simple as that. So this tabernacle is a portable tent designed by God as a place for the Jewish people to come to God on their journey to, in the wilderness to the promised land. Uh, and the book of Leviticus, which tells us about all the offerings that were uh, offered to God through the tabernacle system, which were detailed, m- many different kinds of offerings, but uh, they're all detailed in Leviticus. And this word Leviticus really parallels our title. The word Leviticus defined means to draw near. So from the very beginning of time, God wanted to be close to the people that he had created. We as human beings were created to walk with God. Let's look back at this in the Bible and look at some of the examples of this. Uh, beginning in Genesis chapter 2 when man was created and it says in Genesis 2 7 and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul so this is the first mention we have of man Uh, this is the man being created and God made the man the only one man from the very beginning I think about it God could have made a hundred men or I don't know a thousand men could have made the man and the woman at the same time but he didn't choose to do it that like that he created this one man I think that speaks to the fact that each one of God's created people that are on the earth and have been since the beginning of time are very unique to God God creates people one at a time there's no cookie cutter in heaven turning us out okay <laughs> and and think about it it's amazing that all these people in the earth 
you know, all the all the billions of people in the earth, uh, not one of them looks exactly like the other. There's all a uniqueness about us. Uh, did you know we all have a different fingerprint? You can be identified worldwide by your fingerprint. We all have a unique voice print. You can be recognized by your voice print. Nobody has one exactly like you. That speaks to God makes individual people. He, he doesn't just make groups. God made you and created you, and he loves you. Isn't that so cool? But God creates, takes this dirt, dust of the ground. We, we came from the dirt of the ground, our physical man. When we leave the earth, we're going to go back to the dust of the ground. And, and yet, God breathed into this dirt, and I don't know, maybe sparks flew. Can you imagine what that looked like? And it said he formed this man. That word formed, as you study it, means to squeeze into shape. So this man, this first man named Adam, was squeezed into shape, and then God breathed life unto him. Listen, you don't get any closer to a person than to have them breathe into you. So I think God's saying from the very beginning, he wants to be close to people. God was involved in all the details of this man's life as time progresses. He personally takes this man, Adam, and said he moved him to the Garden of Eden, which was a wonderful place. Let's read about it here in Genesis 2.15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden. And this had a twofold purpose, to dress it and to keep it. So he gave him a job, which was to dress it, which uh, had to be some kind of an agricultural thing that, that Adam was doing. Um, so he was working. You know, we were made to work and fulfill a purpose in the, in the earth. Uh, and then it says that he was created to keep it or to guard it. That's interesting, this term, guard it. Uh, God is inadvertently saying that he, he wouldn't tell Adam to guard something unless there was a threat that something was going to try to come and invade this territory. And really God's telling Adam there is a, there is an outlaw out there that's going to try to come and usurp his authority here. Uh, and, and really he's warning him that he's going to have to keep the hedge up. Because actually this term Garden of Eden, the word garden actually means the hedge. Eden means eternal life. So God placed this man, he's walking with him, put him in the Garden of Eden, gave him a job, gave him an assignment. And God didn't send an angel to train Adam. He did it himself. Uh, Genesis 2, 16, 17. God uh, explains to Adam how things are going to work. He encouraged him to eat all the good fruit of the garden. And can you imagine how wonderful that garden was? This is before the curse came. This is when everything was perfect. I'm sure there were no weeds. I'm sure the temperature was amazing. I'm sure there was no humidity like we have here in the summer in, in Oklahoma City or, or wherever you live if you're listening to this. God encouraged him to eat any of the fruit, all of the fruit. And I'm sure the fruit was amazing because there's nothing better than fruit in season, right? And, uh, and, but then God warned him about there's also a tree here that I don't want you to eat. There were two trees, actually. Uh, he said and they were the garden or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Now, Adam was to eat of all the trees, but also of the tree of life. And, you know, there's never any record of Adam eating of that tree. We don't know that he did or that he didn't really. But God said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he made it very clear. He said, because the day you eat of that tree, that's the day you will surely die. Now, it's interesting. 
You may think, well, why did God put that tree there? Because here's the way life works. God always gives us a choice. God will not make anybody do anything. He wanted Adam to choose the right thing, which was to serve him, to honor him, to eat of his tree, to leave this tree that would ultimately harm him, not only harm him, but bring death into the world. Because God said, you will surely die if you eat of that. Uh, And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But remember, we're talking about God's wanting to be close to man, uh, as as our title said. In, In verses 19 and 20 of Genesis 2, it says, God partnered with Adam in naming the animals. Uh, Genesis 3, 8, he hung out with Adam. He was with him in the cool of the day as a friend. And, uh, and, and so uh, there's never any mention of the serpent until Adam got married. And God gives him this beautiful wife named Eve, which came from his side, which he saw when she was created. She came from the side of the man. God, or Adam looked at her. And said, she shall be called a woman. He saw that he was going to like her because she was made comparable to him. Unlike all the animals he had seen in the garden. But he saw that she was a man with a womb. And a womb is an incubator. That And Adam somehow saw that this woman has an incubator. Which means she'll be able to take things and incubate them. And then give them back to me fully matured. And that's the partnership of marriage. Man is, there's a man, and then there's a woman, and you work together to, pro, uh, to produce life on the earth. Uh, so we see their marriage. They get married at the end of Genesis 2, and then in Genesis chapter 3, the very first thing that happens is the serpent shows up, right? And he comes to separate uh, God from the man, but also to separate the man from the woman. And that's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to not only to get in between you and God, he wants to get in you, into your marriage. We see that the enemy are, uh, hates marriage as we look at it today. You know, I've, I've traveled around the country for the last 20 years in my ministry, and I've taught on the importance of marriage and how marriages, great marriages don't just happen. They have to be worked on. Did you know half, 50% of marriages uh, do not make it? They end in divorce today in our culture. Do you know that's also true in the church? Which means that even if we're Christians, uh, there's some things we need to understand about marriage. But back to this, the enemy comes to separate, first of all, God uh, from man. So he tempts Eve, and Eve partakes of the fruit and then gives it to Adam, and they both do. Adam, the, the, the woman was deceived, but Adam made a decision to turn his back on God. I think that's very interesting. You know, somebody, I've heard jokes made about this, and somebody said, well, this woman just, you know, ate us out of house and home, (laughs) blaming the woman, because she did eat of the fruit first. But, you know, Adam should have stopped her, and he didn't. And then Adam, she was deceived, but not the man. He purposely turned his back on God. It's like high treason. He knew what he was doing. He knew he was disobeying God. Adam rejected God. Uh, But don't be too hard on Adam as we talk about this. Because we all, as human beings, do the same thing. Because this curse that came through Adam comes on all of us. We all had that same choice to not obey the serpent. But we all did. And, and the Bible said that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So, here's the point. After man's sin, there's a breach. He can no longer be close to God. 
uh, the, the, something has happened. And death now has entered the world. And it affected not only Adam and Eve and not only their marriage, but also, of course, is going to infect the world and, and, and be something that now is in the world. And this curse comes on the world. But uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 23, the Bible says this, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth, speaking of Adam, from the Garden of Eden. So this is talking about how that God evicted Adam from the garden because of his sin. He told him he had to leave. He sent him out to till the ground from where he was taken. Now, this term is interesting, sent him forth, because it actually means this, and you can look this up in any concordance. It actually means to put away, to let go, or to divorce. So here's what happened in the garden that day. Not only did Adam sin and now his relationships affected, now God has to divorce Adam. Isn't that interesting? There is a change in the relationship, a cutting off. And it's not that God was mean and ugly and cruel. It's that Adam's and his actions and his choices produce this curse that God can no longer be close to him. The reason he put him out of the garden is because if Adam had stayed there and then gone to eat from the tree of life, he would have actually lived forever in a fallen state and would have been unredeemable. And so God had said, I'm going to have to, if you will, divorce you, Adam. Uh, you know, here's a thought. If you've been through a divorce, and a lot of people have, I'm sure a lot of people that are listening to this have. The Bible said that God hates divorce. And I think a lot of times people have heard that and thought, well, if I get a divorce, then God's going to hate me. In fact, it's even been my experience i've heard a lot of people talk about churches they were in that divorce was like the unpardonable sin you can be forgiven uh of a lot of things but you can't be forgiven from divorce because god hates divorce and malachi 2 verse 16 give, gives reference to that i'm going to read this right now in malachi 2 god's <coughs> excuse me this is god speaking for i hate divorce says the lord the god of israel to divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. So God hates divorce. But listen, he doesn't hate divorced people. I'll let that sink in for a minute. He hates divorce because he loves people. And he hates what divorce does to people. Because divorce hurts people. I think maybe there's not many things in the world that are as hurtful and harmful and will affect you like divorce. Really, when you think about divorce, it's going to be something that you're going to have to deal with for the rest of your life. I'm not trying to put a trip on you, but it's, it's just going to be there. Now, can God forgive divorce? Oh, absolutely he can give, forgive divorce. It's not the unpardonable sin. Of course he had. Of course he can. Uh, he, yes, he can forgive divorce. How do you know that, Pastor Ken? Whenever he said that he hated divorce. Well, remember when Jesus went to the woman at the well in John chapter 4? You can read about this. And he goes to this woman to minister to her. She is a, a woman outside the covenant of, of the Jews. She's a Samaritan. But Jesus goes to her. Such a beautiful picture of grace. And then he begins to engage her in a conversation. And in this conversation, he says, bring me your husband. 
And this lady says, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus, by the word of knowledge, which is one of the gifts of the Spirit, says, yes, I know you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and you now you're living with a guy. So he, how does he know that? It's because the Holy Spirit told him that. And this woman says, you, uh, give me, you must be really something. You must be God. Well, of course, Jesus caught her attention because he wanted to minister to her. And because of that, she opened up her heart to the Lord. But Jesus forgave her. She got right with God, in fact, and went and told everybody, come listen to a man that, that told me everything about my life. Can this not be the Messiah? And she recognized him as a Messiah. So did Jesus forgive divorce? Absolutely. Five divorces. And this woman got a brand new start. So the fact is Jesus does forgive divorce, and yet don't get a divorce if you're married because of the effects it'll have on your life. We need to work out these things, and we can do so with the power of God in our life. But now, let's go back to Adam. He's in the garden. He finds himself alone and exposed and without God. But do you know what? God had a plan. At the very time of man's sin, God declared war, not on the man, but on the serpent who had deceived the man. Let's read about it in Genesis 3:15. And God says this, and I, speak, God speaking, will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Let me stop there for a moment. Between your seed, that's speaking to the serpent, and her seed. Wait a minute. Women don't have seed. Men have the seed. Men carry the seed for reproduction. Woman carries the egg. What's this talking about? This is prophetic of the seed of the woman that will come forth and do this. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What in the world is this talking about? This is talking about Jesus coming. This is, this is in code. This is kind of in a shadow, if you will. Remember, we're talking about shadows. This is between your seed, her seed. Her seed will bruise your head. It wasn't the seed of a man that got Mary pregnant. It was a seed of Almighty God. Jesus was born from God with pure blood, unsinned blood. Un, 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 blood that had not been tainted by the world he was god joining man in the flesh in the incarnation wow it's, isn't that incredible even now as we talk about it but god prophesies that's gonna that's gonna happen and this term he said i will put enmity between you and the woman uh this term enmity means hostility you know god is not our enemy he is not the one bringing trouble our way. Uh, God's not bringing it. We're going to face trouble. We're going to face opposition in this life. But understand this. It's not God that's doing it. Our enemy is Satan. He is real. He hates you. The Bible said he only comes to steal and kill and destroy. And he would kill you if he could right now. But he can't. So God is declaring the entire plan uh, that he's going to do. For man from the very time of the fall. Uh, so then we move forward a little bit. Genesis 3.21. It says also for Adam and his wife. The Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So remember how when Adam and Eve were discovered. And they looked at, at themselves after sin. And they saw that they were naked. I, 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 we're not sure what it looked like. But there must have been some kind of covering on them up until that time. But when sin came, they were totally exposed. And that's a picture of how we are before we receive Jesus Christ. We're exposed to the attacks 
and the slurs and the the wickedness of the devil these things come on us and we really don't have any power against it and so uh, uh we're exposed but it says god took skins and clothed adam and eve so the they tried to cover themselves with leaves but it didn't work but so god covered them with animal skins but think about this in order for that skin to be put on them that animal had to die he had to give that up so i believe it was at this point in time somehow god must have explained the blood covenant to them and then with this animal showed them that they could only be covered for their sin if something had to die and we don't know the details of that this is all we know about it but apparently god must have explained something about that even at that time he was showing that in order for us to dwell with god something had to die ultimately the one who died was god and do you know this was not god's plan b the cross was not plan b really it was a plan of god from the very beginning for people to begin to draw near to god again how do you know that brother ken well revelation chapter 13 verse 8 declares this wonderful truth at the very end of the new testament speaking of the return of jesus everything that's going to be going on at the end of the tribulation when jesus comes back to the world and makes everything right and it says this all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world so from the beginning of time this was god's plan he knew this was going to have to happen uh, so god began to come close again to people even in the garden of eden when Adam and Eve were expelled, God with the animal skins is declaring, hey, I, I still want to be close to you. I, I'm going to institute a plan. I want to get you back. So God began to come close again. We see this throughout the history of the Old Testament to individual people who would believe him. We see this in men like Enoch. Let's look at a few. Uh, Genesis 5, 23. This man named Enoch. I love the story of Enoch. It's brief. It's only a couple of verses, but it's so descriptive. It says this, uh, verse 23, Genesis 5. Enoch lived 365 years. Verse 24, walking in close fellowship with God. Then one day he disappeared because God took him. <laughs> King James says it this way. And Enoch was not because God took him. I don't know what that looked like. But apparently Enoch loved God. And he was walking in fellowship with God. He, he, was, he was talking and walking and spending time with God and, and making God his Lord. And I don't know, he got so close to God that kabam, one day he took him. The, I think this is a picture of the soon coming rapture of the church. Enoch was raptured. Maybe he was the first rapture of all time. I don't know. But, but God wanted to be close. God drew close to Noah. It was a very rough time on the earth. Everybody was wicked. But Noah obeyed God, built the ark to preserve the world. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 talks about that. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God, who warned him about, excuse me, who warned him about things that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world, and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah is really another picture of the rapture of the church so everything is wicked on the earth it just continues to grow more wicked and more wicked and more wicked 
until God says, Noah, I want to preserve your family. And so Noah begins building this boat, and it took him years and years to build this boat. And can you imagine the opposition? He's building this boat on dry land, and he's telling people, hey, you know what? God told me it's going to rain. You better get right with God. Listen, people were making fun of him and mocking him because it had never rained. They don't even know what rain is. The water at that time, uh, or the earth at that time, had been watered by the water that came up from the ground. From, from groundwater. There was no rain. That's the way the earth was at that time. Because when the floods came, all the rains that were in the heavens, there was some kind of a canopy of water there. We're not sure what that looked like. But it all fell and the flood came on the earth. So Noah's preaching this. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And he's telling people, hey, you know what? You better get ready. You better get right. In fact, he was telling them, hey, you better go build your boat. I think there's a story there for all of us. We all need to take the uh, responsibility to build a boat during these rough times on the earth. I've heard people say, yeah, Noah built, God had Noah build uh, that boat so big because he wanted to put people on it. No, Noah put the animals on it. There was no room for people. I believe what Noah was preaching was not, hey, come, come get on my boat. He's preaching, hey, you better go build your own boat because I, you can't get on my boat. I got to get the animals. I have my own assignment, but you have to take responsibility for your family, for, for the things that concern you. You know, that's true for all of us. We have to be serious about the way we live for God because it's going to affect our family. Because, you know, I want to get my family on the boat. If we're living in the end times and the rapture is about to come, and I don't know, I think maybe we're close, and I'm not going to preach on end times, but uh, if that be true, I want to make sure my family's on the boat, right? I know you do too. So Noah did. That's another picture of the rapture. Noah was literally raptured and things began, started all over with Noah, the eight people in his family. But then moving on, we get to Abraham. Hebrews 11 verse 8. It says this. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed God when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. Wow. So God speaks to Abraham. He's living in Ur of the Chaldees. And God appears to him and tells him, Abraham, I want to do something special with you. And so I want you to obey me. And then he gives him something to do, to, to move. <laughs> but here's the amazing thing. He didn't tell him where he was going. He said, just get up and follow me. Wow. And so Noah, uh, excuse me, Abraham did. He obeyed God. Abraham believed God. Abraham must have been the kind of guy that was able to think outside of the box of everybody else. You know, I think God uses people like that. People that can, if you will, think outside the box. There's a fable I heard one time about Abraham that I dare say it's not true, but it's descriptive maybe of, of Abraham's, the way he, Abraham thought. And it goes like this. Uh, when Abraham was young, he was working for his father, Terah, and his father had an idol shop because in the land they lived in, it was a land of idol worshipers, and they worshiped these images and idols. So his dad had an idol shop where he made idols. People would come in, buy these wooden idols, take them to their homes, and worship these things. So one day, the fable goes, Abraham's dad went to lunch, and Abraham, young Abraham's looking around the building at all these idols. idols excuse me. <laughs> and he begins to think, wow, these idols, they're all, people worship these things, man. Isn't that amazing? And they're all just wooden images here on shelves. 
So he gets this crazy idea. So Abraham begins to just go over and knock off all the idols, throw them, just break them all over the store, just destroy all these sections of idols on the, on the idol shelves and just, just ruin them, okay? And now so Abraham's uh, dad comes back from lunch and says, what in the world? What, uh, who did this? What, what happened to all these idols? So Abraham says, Dad, it was amazing. One of these idols got in a fight with another, another idol, and they all began to fight with each other, and they all just killed each other. And that's why they're laying around the room. And Abraham's father said, you're ridiculous. Abraham says, what do you mean? He said, well, they didn't do that. Abraham said, why didn't they do that? Abraham's dad said, well, they can't do that. They don't do things. Abraham says, exactly. Why do we worship these things, Dad? Now, I doubt that's true, but I think that's pretty, a pretty good descriptive story of what was going on in Abraham's life. In order to leave like he did, he must have been a person that was able to think outside the box. So Abraham obeys God, and because of his steps of obedience, and, and God did this with him in steps. He didn't tell him the whole plan in the beginning. He just begins to walk this out. You know, that's a picture of how we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't know exactly where we're going. We may not know. We may have an idea, and we'll have a step, but we don't know the final place that God's taking us to. You know, my life, i got to tell you, has just been a picture of that. Since I've been serving God since 1971, I've been around a while. And uh, when I began with God, I, I really wasn't going very many places in my life. I didn't have a lot of ambition. I got saved and met the Lord when I was 19. I was filled with the Holy Spirit. My wife and I began this great adventure. We got some prophetic words that we were called into ministry. I'm, I wasn't sure what that was going to look like. Uh, I didn't know exactly if I was called to be a preacher or what. So, but we just began to do the best we could to follow God. We went to church. We, we were faithful. We lived in Fort Worth, Texas for a while. We joined a great church. I got on the praise and worship team. That was a step. I, I learned how to do uh, praise and worship music back in the 70s, in the early days of, of that movement that happened on the earth. Uh, then I became a praise and worship leader in another church. And then I met a guy that was in children's ministry. And I walked that out, and this guy asked me to come work with him. And from there, I moved to Tulsa, and I had two little kids. And it was a step of faith, and we didn't know what that, what that was going to look like. But God blessed us in that. And I got to be a part of a, of a television show that reached kids with the gospel. I wrote praise and worship songs for little kids. Uh, that, that was a great part of my ministry. I led worship in a church. Uh, a great church in Tulsa for a long time and then my wife and I went on the road there was another step that we did that we went on the road and traveled and we taught on the importance of family and of marriage and how to biblically do your marriage and the importance of serving God in your family and and uh, we wrote books about that and we did that, and, and, and now, I'm, I'm, personally, I'm in another phase. I'm, I'm not traveling quite as much. I'm a part of our church here. And I'm doing some different things, mentoring things. And, but I, and I, I didn't see all these steps coming in the very beginning. It was a journey. God wants to take us on an exciting journey with steps and changes. you got to be willing to change, and, and Abraham was that kind of guy. Later, God made a covenant with him. We'll talk about that covenant in detail later in this teaching. But then God drew close to a man named Moses, and he became a, became a great deliverer for the nation of Israel. God drew, drew close to him. Now, Israel was in bondage because of sin, and God delivered these people of, of Israel into Egyptian bondage. 
and so they had been in that place for many, many years. And so God raised up Moses as a great deliverer. And he came in. And you know the story of all the plagues that happened and how God said, let my people go. And Pharaoh was resistant. And, and, it's a, and Pharaoh, of course, was a type of the enemy that doesn't want to let God's people go. But Moses was a great deliverance. Once again, that's a picture of Jesus Christ, a shadow. Moses operated in the shadow of Christ. And he was able to deliver the people with multifold miracles and uh, so now they go to the wilderness and god's taking them to the promised land and then uh, you know god speaks uh, instruction to him uh, they kept the passover by the way before they left and they went through the red sea and god's wanting to be close to them they are on a wilderness journey and god institutes a plan for them to be close to him and exodus chapter 19 speaks of this plan and uh, God uh, sends Moses to Mount Sinai. And God is giving the pe people a chance, once again, to be closer to him. God wants to be close to the people of Israel. They've been delivered. They've gone through the Red Sea. You know, it's kind of like a picture, if you will. We're talking about shadows and types of them being saved, delivered from the bondage of Egypt. And then they went through the Red Sea. You know, that's a picture of water baptism. It's what it tells us in the New Testament. That was like water baptism is a declaration that you are dying to the old man, that you're being raised up. It's like you go under the water and you drown and you die to that old way of life, but you're coming up with a new dedication to, uh, to live for God. That's something that we as believers need to do to obey God. Uh, and, and we're making a declaration. Hey, my life, that old life is dead behind me. I'm going ahead with God. So they're going through the wilderness. And they, go to, they get to Mount Sinai, and God's wanting to speak to his people. So I'm going to read a few verses about this here in Exodus chapter 19. So hang in here with me. I'm going to start with verse 3 in Exodus 19, if you want to follow this in your Bible. And I'm reading from the NLT, Exodus 19.3, and it says this, Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before the Lord. The Lord called him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob, that's the people of Israel. Announce it to the, descendant, the, to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the, to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. So God's making a great declaration here. He's saying, now you've, been, you've come out for me. You, you've been delivered. Now I want to make you my kingdom of priests. I want every one of you to be a priest. A priest is one that goes in to the presence of God, that makes offerings to God. The Bible says this about us in the church. We are kings and priests unto God, and we shall reign on the earth. There's a lot to be said there, but, but God's really giving them this invitation to be a kingdom of priests. Verse 7, so Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Verse 8, then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Moses, behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you. And believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So Moses, as the 
uh, surrogate, if you will, or really the priest. He's going back and forth from the people to the Lord, and they're, they're, God's making contingencies for these people so that they can be closer to him. That's what this is all about. We're talking about drawing near to God. So God's wanting to draw near to them so they can draw near to him. Moses then goes up to the mountain, and God gives him the Ten Commandments, and then the glory of God comes on that mountain. And we jump to uh, Exodus chapter 20 now in verse 18. And it says this, When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance trembling with fear. fear.